Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm Kramer. Welcome to our last night from CNBC One Market in San Francisco. Welcome to Mad Money and welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to teach and to educate. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. The third quarter's in the bag, and it's been a good one. Best in five years. Even September was good. And historically, that tends to be a rough month. Despite the incessant negative chatter about tariffs and trade, most stocks just seem unaffected by the news flow, including today when the Dow edged up 18 points, S&P did next to nothing, NASDAQ drifted 0.05% higher. In fact, the market's been so robust that you have to think long and hard about stocks that have lagged behind here. Two losers, though, stand out, Tesla and Facebook, both victims of self-inflicted wounds that resurfaced in the last day of the quarter to really drive home the losses. Tesla stock got hammered because Elon Musk, the founder, chairman, and CEO, turned down the very attractive settlement that the SEC offered as punishment for his extremely ill-advised tweet about taking the company private at $420 a share. Now they're throwing a book at him. No wonder the stock plummeted 14% today. More on that later. Facebook, the most hated company in Silicon Valley, at least by my survey of techies at Dreamforce, revealed that there had been a security breach, one that allowed hackers to take over ah, 50 million accounts. 50 million here, 50 million there. This is exactly the kind of thing that makes shareholders worry that Facebook needs to spend even more money on security because it clearly hadn't been spending enough before the flood. When that spend hits, the gross margins come down and the stock comes down with it. That's why you saw a 2.6% decline today. You know, my charitable trust, which you can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club, maintains a small position in Facebook, but it's become quite a distraction to the process of making money. Nevertheless, despite the ugliness from Tesla and Facebook, You've had a pretty great quarter. So with that in mind, what's the game plan for the next week? Monday night, we hear from one of our favorite new companies. It's called Stitch Fix. We're out in San Francisco where everybody's talking about disruption and personalization. Well, Stitch Fix is disrupting the brick-and-mortar retailers by essentially acting as your digital personal shopper. One look at their website tells you exactly how powerful this story is. The company's revenues are growing like wildfire, and it's already profitable. Stitch Fix has that rare ability to convert users of the service into buyers of the stock, like Tesla, except it's making money, and the CEO, Katrina Lake, is a superb, even-keeled manager. This stock has already given you a magnificent 40% gain since I started recommending it less than three months ago, but it's pulled back dramatically over the past couple of weeks on worries about competition from Amazon. You have my blessing to buy some Stitch Fix both before and after the quarter. Tuesday, we get the official kickoff to earnings season, and it all starts with PepsiCo. This is, alas, a bittersweet moment because Indra Nui steps down as CEO the next day. 
Indra reinvented the company, transforming it from a carbonated soda and salty snacks business into a more diversified operation with many healthy offerings. I've come to respect her not only for her business acumen, but perhaps more important, for her leadership role as an executive focused on doing good works worldwide. These days you see many CEOs doing the same thing, but Indra was well ahead of the curve on important issues like diversity, equality, and sustainability. I'm hoping she stays on as a highly visible role model for everybody, especially billions of women around the globe. But how about Pesco's business? I expect another good quarter like the last one which should allow the stock to rally, but the sector remains extremely out of favor, and I don't think PepsiCo's earnings can change that. We also get results from paychecks, and this is a slow and steady wins the race kind of company that benefits every time the Fed raises interest rates. It's basically free money for these payroll processors because of the float, the interest it earns between when they get the company's money and they pay you. However, paychecks may have a problem. The competition among companies that advise on business services like retirement savings, one of their smaller divisions, has gotten very fierce. More important, we know that Square, the ambitious point-of-sale kingpin that we like so much, has decided to get into the payroll processing business itself. Square's a big-time disruptor, and they're all about small and medium-sized business, which is very much Paychex's wheelhouse. Call me conflicted. Wednesday, we turn to one of the most despised sectors in the market, housing. When the Fed raises rates, hedge fund managers reflexively turn against the housing stocks. That's the attitude Lenar will have to dispel when it reports in the morning. And candidly, I don't think this giant home builder can, even as I expect a beat and raise quarter. Why? Because KB Home delivered a monster beat earlier this week, and it only meant absolutely nothing to the stock. I doubt that Lenar can report a better number. So imagine what we face with the Sisyphean task when they try to explain how well things are going. What can I say? I've rarely ever seen the housing stocks go up during this phase of a Fed tightening cycle, regardless of how well the companies are actually doing. Everyone's too worried about mortgage rates headed higher. This issue even came up on KB's conference call as management puzzled over the disparity between the strength of its business and the weakness of its stock because Wall Street refuses to believe that the good news can continue. So I say you got to be careful with Lennar. Constellation Brands STZ reports on Thursday, and if you want to see what happens when a visionary company tries to deal with a skeptical analyst community, then watch how this one trades. I expect Constellation's beer sales, we're talking Modelo and Corona, are better than the rest of the industry, but that still might not be enough to boost the stock. What's going on here? Two things. First, in this country, the beer business seems to have peaked for the major producers, except for Constellation. For the longest time, this company's numbers were so good, though, that many investors were willing to give them a pass Blind eye on the broader weakness in the industry. But that seems to have changed with the last two quarters, which, while strong, weren't strong enough. Second, there's Constellation's aggressive pursuit of marijuana through its $5 billion investment in canopy growth, the most advanced player in the cannabis business in terms of having a global go-to-market strategy. Some investors see this as a sign that the company lacks faith in its core alcohol business, Without a reacceleration of both wine and beer sales, I bet the stock would get punished. If that happens, I would want to be a buyer of Constellation stock. Why? Well, among the fact that it's a great management, I think the Reed strategy makes a ton of sense to me. After the close, we hear from Costco. I think that once again, the company will deliver numbers that are superior to most of the industry. Stock's up 26% for the year, so it is priced for perfection. That's precisely what Costco's been giving us. One new wrinkle, though, worries about tariffs and whether Costco eats the new costs rather than passes them on to club members. They could be enough of an overhang to mute the terrific numbers I'm anticipating. Finally, Friday, we have the most important news of the week, the Labor Department's non-farm payroll report. Things are tricky with this one. If the number's not a blowout, we'll hear concerns that the Fed is putting the brakes on an economy 
that's already cooled. On the other hand, if it's too strong, we'll hear that the Fed needs to raise interest rates even faster to stamp out inflation. I bring this up because it's the most worrisome part of every tightening cycle. I think the Fed's doing a great job, and I think we're going to get a Goldilocks number, one that's strong enough to refute the slowdown story, but weak enough in terms of higher wages to withstand the inflation narrative. The bottom line, as we enter the first week of the fourth quarter, Friday's labor report is by far the most important number. And if it doesn't come in just right, like it's been for ages, then you've got to be ready for a bit of a sell-off because after this strong quarter, we might as well be set up for one. Let's take some calls. Let's go to Robert in Pennsylvania. Robert! Hey, Jim. Go Eagles. Go Birds. Okay. My question regarding Take-Two Interactive I'm interested in buying the stock. The thing is, is that it's at nearly an all-time yearly high. Right. And the September, you know, correction in NASDAQ didn't, do, it didn't move down at all. In fact, it's still going up. So my question is, what do you think of the company? And second, well, how would you go about pulling the trigger on this? Uh, yeah. I think the company is the best in the business. Uh, I, by the way, Activision Blizzard's been doing well, too. This has Red Dead Redemption 2 coming out. Strauss Selnick's amazing executive. If you want to buy some, I think is it's at, at its all-time high today. You can buy some, but then you got to have it go lower because I can't have you come in at a, bre- a new high and then bump into you on the street and you say to me, hey, Jim, you crushed me. I don't want to do that. Let's go to EB in Florida. EB! Uh, hi, booyah, Jim. Booyah. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jim. I have a I have a question here. Um, Bank of America today said it was going to ban, put a ban on the penny stock. Right. Um, and I have I have quite a few shares with Bank of America. What can I expect? Oh, I think that this was just a very prudent thing by Brian Moynihan and company. We really don't want to encourage people to speculate in stocks that we don't even want to talk about on this show. Uh, the problem is, is the banks are under some pressure because interest rates did not go higher that they, lent, that they lend you at. In other words, the price of money didn't go up, but the price that they have to pay you on CDs and your deposit did go up, so they're being squeezed, and that's why the stock went down, not because of that very smart penny stock rule. Hey, let's go to Dennis in Minnesota. Dennis! Hello, Jim. Booyah. Booyah, Dennis. Anyway, I have owned Vector Group. Oh, yes. Well, I have owned Vector Group since 2003. It has always been a good, steady dividend payer. Very good long-term results. I know the tobacco group has some current problems with e-cigs, FDA wanting lower nicotine levels, people smoking less, etc. But Vector is also diversified with its real estate business. Now, earnings are a little bit down, and the payout ratio for the dividend is quite high, but the stock has crumbled from 23 to 13. Is it time to buy more or a No, well, first of all, I think there's there's three things I I, I don't like about this. One is I don't like this jewel coming in against them. Second, I don't recommend any tobacco stocks. And third, I want that real estate business. I want it separated, and they seem to be unwilling to do that. All right, Friday. Friday is the most important news we get this next week. Things are tricky with this one. It has to be just right. Oh, man, money tonight. Hey, it's our last night in San Francisco. Better do things big. We got a royal on set. No, not Prince Harry. VMware. I'm sitting down with the Cloud King to see what's ahead for the company. And that's not the only monarch joining us. The fastest growing Cloud King, ServiceNow, is here to discuss what's ahead for the company. But first, Tesla tumbled the most since 2015 on worries of a muskless future. So what should you do with the stock? Don't make a move before hearing my take on the electric car making. And of course, stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? 
Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day, clearly and concisely, in context and with perspective, and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today. So much for Elon Musk, the candy operator, the modern-day Thomas Edison, the guy who was always one step ahead of a posse of angry short sellers. The posse finally got their man. And they're going full Oxbow incident here, except in the Oxbow incident, the guy was clearly innocent. When you read the complaint about what Musk did, basically fabricating this bid to take Tesla private out of whole cloth, uh, precisely in order to smash the people betting against his stock, the thing that stands out is his hubris. He tried to destroy the shorts and in the process ended up destroying himself. You might think destroy is too strong a word, but the complaint traces out a seemingly chimerical $420 offer that seems to have been designed purely to force the short sellers to either cover their positions, meaning buy back the stock to cash out, or be obliterated. And to make matters worse, Musk had a chance to settle with the SEC that did the complaint. They offered him a deal that was pretty much slap on the wrist, pay a nominal fine, and step down as chairman of the board for a couple of years, but no admission of guilt, no resigning as CEO. Instead, Musk blew up the settlement at the last minute and decided to fight this in court. This man is his own worst enemy. No wonder Tesla's stock plunged 14% today. Cut me now is a host of problems. First, ask yourself, would you want to own the stock without Musk at the helm? Say what you will about this seemingly unhinged recent behavior. He's very good at selling people on his vision for the company. With Musk gone, I think a sizable number of investors will start viewing Tesla as merely a money-losing automaker. Second, given the incredibly brazen, totally made-up story about firm financing for a $420 bid, the real concern here is not the SEC. It's the Justice Department potentially charging him with securities fraud. When you read the brief by the government, it does everything but outright say he manipulated the stock for his own benefit. Sure sounds like securities fraud to me, at the very least. I think the Justice Department will feel compelled to investigate now that must challenge the SEC so brazenly. How could he be so reckless as to fight the SEC when they seem to have him dead to rights with information that it looks like he may have provided himself? Of course, Musk insists on his own innocence, but I think it's too risky to own the stock while we wait to see if the other shoe drops. Why? Well, that brings us to the third problem. Tesla has some debt refinancings coming up real soon. There's a convertible bond he needs to do something about by November. Plus, there's always a chance that he misses forecasts. He's done that before and needs to raise money again. All of that just got a lot more difficult. Bankers will raise money for just about anybody, as long as they're not going to prison. But if justice is pursuing Musk right now on a parallel path or the SEC recommends that they should, which is very possible, even as we have no idea whether either of these things will happen, then I expect most bankers will simply say no. They don't want to add a risk factor like the CEO might end up in jail to the prospectus. That's the crux of the problem, people. Tesla is constantly in need of money because it loses so much cash per car. If they were anywhere near profitable, we could have some theoretical discussion about a creator stepping aside from the CEO job as a new person steps in, like when John Scully took over from Steve Jobs way back in 1983. 
although it's, it's not like that worked out all that great for Apple shareholders. But there's nothing theoretical about a company with a balance sheet from hell trying to raise capital with a CEO who could potentially be charged for securities fraud at any minute. So why isn't the stock down even more? Because Tesla is a cult stock with no middle ground. The shorts believe it should go to zero. The longs believe it's going to 1,000 and felt robbed of the upside when Musk suggested capping at $420, a cannabis-related price he apparently picked in order to impress his girlfriend. I think the longs will wait, and if nothing happens, they'll presume all is well. Why not? It's worked every other previous pullback, and they're true believers. The shorts will be more involved. They know Musk passed up a deal that would have been better for Tesla and its shareholders, something that could have made him as less distracted, perhaps even more visionary CEO, with an independent chairman and two independent board members. Frankly, if he'd taken that SEC deal, I don't know if he knew this, but it would have gotten the stock higher. The shorts see this now as a slow-motion train wreck, but when they go to press their bets, they may find that there's simply not enough stock to borrow. Remember, that's how you short something. Borrow the stock, sell it high, then hopefully buy it back lower. So I think Tesla stock can keep going down, but I can't see it trading more in line with an ordinary car company because the bulls will craft some fairy tale narrative in their heads where Musk can stay on and even do a better job as he both fights the SEC and makes the best cars. That's what it means to be a cult stock, and Musk followers are cult-like in their devotion. Bottom line, until Elon Musk is removed from the premises, the Tesla bulls will love the stock. If he somehow keeps his job, they'll be back as buyers. They simply cannot resist the car or the man, even as I think his best defense at this point might be to invoke an insanity plea. My advice for you, please don't drink the Kool-Aid. Let's take some calls. Let's go to Eric in Texas. Eric. How you doing? My question is about GE stock. You recommended it as a buy when it fell below 15. I bought in around 12 and a half and it's still dropping. My question is, is it still a long-term hold? Should I cut my losses and sell? Or should I dollar cost average and start buying some oh, more? Oh, okay, I understand that the, it was predicated upon the idea that perhaps they had a, a plan that would uh, very quickly uh, fix the balance sheet, and that did not come to pass. So I think that you can hold it, but I can't recommend uh, uh, taking a big swing at it. You just can't. There's got to be some more tangible evidence that that balance sheet can be fixed. I want to go to Tony in Oregon. Tony! Hey, how's it going? Uh, I'm doing well, Tony. How about you? I'm doing pretty well, too. Okay. How about a stock? So my question is, uh, back in February, lithium stocks kind of tanked after Morgan Stanley came out with a report stating that lithium was going to reduce in price by 45% in the next seven years. And FMC is a chemical company, and they're going to do a spin-out next month of their lithium branch. And I'm wondering if you think either of the stocks are worth investing in. Oh, no, I, I think own FMC. I think it's what that's back in play as being a positive situation. This is a Philadelphia company, Go Birds, and I think that it's going to do quite well. This is a decent level to pick it up, and I would do so. All right, listen, as long as Elon Musk is at the helm, Tesla bulls will love the stock no matter what. For you, the home gamer, I'm asking you not to drink the Kool-Aid. Hey, much more mad money, including my exclusive with VMware. It may be driving autos, retail, and healthcare to greater heights. But can the cloud play also drive your portfolio higher? Hey, then I'm sitting down with ServiceNow. The stock's up 270% over the past five years. But could the move continue? I've got the CEO. And uh, let's pull out all the stocks before I hop on the red-eye back-home edition of the lightning round. So stay with Kramer. 
I like to call VMware one of the kings of the cloud. From Silicon Valley to software in the cloud, VMware is taking share and going where few dare. But with its head in the cloud, can this digital giant reign on? You know the cloud, meaning the switch to software you access via the web is one of the greatest growth stories around. So while we're out in San Francisco, we've been checking in on as many of the cloud kings as we can because these companies are leading the charge. Take VMware, the virtualization company that pioneered much of the technology that makes data centers so powerful, which is why they've become a major cloud infrastructure play. Now, the stock has gained nearly 25% for the year, although that move's been a bit rocky as Dell still owns a controlling interest in VMware, and they were considering gobbling up the whole company before finally putting that plan on ice. I think this stock has more room to run. But beyond that, this company has its finger on the pulse of the cloud infrastructure space like no one else. Don't just take it from me. Uh, earlier this week, we spoke with Sanjay Poonin. He's the chief operating officer of VMware to find out what's next for this fabulous company. Take a look. Mr. Putin, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, always a pleasure. Thanks Sanjay, since me. I've been following you, I recognize that VMware, which was a company, frankly, I thought maybe had been left behind, has really had a renaissance. And I think it's because you've tapped into how the cloud really works and how to make it less expensive for all sorts of companies. So maybe you could just walk our viewers through who still say to me, Jim, if I knew what that king did, I'd own the stock. You know, uh, Jim, you're absolutely right. The story of VMware is actually profound. Studies have shown that a dollar spent on VMware resulted in $10 of economic value. So over our 20-year lifetime, we've accumulated about $50 billion of revenue, maybe a half a trillion worth of value. And I brought my little shirt here to demonstrate our story. You know, why not have a little TV moment? Sure, why not? And on the left-hand side here, you see the data center. The software-defined data center is what we invented okay. to make the on-premise world look like a cloud. We call it the private cloud. Okay. But the world is now moving to the public cloud, and in this world of hybrid cloud, VMware has now become relevant. The same with the desktop, the top part going mobile. So what customers were asking from us, for us is, I see why you're relevant to here, which right. is the left side of history. But how are you relevant to the future of history, which is cloud, mobile, security? And two years ago, we made a pivot in the company to embrace the public cloud, announced our seminal partnership with Amazon, and that was a turning point for this company. We okay. moved those headwinds of the public cloud to become tailwinds for us. And now we're beginning to see the future of VMware. Now, ironically, customers are not just spending on cloud mobile security, but also on our traditional on-premise business, which is great. Well, I think that it's very important. One of the reasons why I've liked your stock so much, not a lot of companies have unbelievably good, unblemished relationships with Amazon. How did that whole thing come about? Because that may be the fastest growing part of a company that many of our viewers own. Well, Amazon's a very special company and clearly the number one in the public cloud. Andy Jassy was a classmate of mine at business school. Pat, my boss, the CEO, Andy, myself, and a few others at VMware got together and said, listen, we had a business in the public cloud called vCloud Air. We decided to invest, and we felt if we could create this partnership with them that was very special. And we don't do Barney partnerships, just a Mickey Mouse press release. <laughs> I mean, the reality no, is And we, I have to tell you, Sanjay, I've, I've, out here I hear a lot of them, and, and I just say that's not real, and then it turns out they're not. You know, and the way in which you can tell a real partnership is there's deep engineering, there's deep sales collaboration, there's deep marketing on all those fronts. We meet on a quarterly basis. Andy, Pat, myself, and we basically look at our teams, and sometimes you can't even tell where an Amazon engineer and a VMware engineer are apart from each other. 
our events. There's about 100,000 people who come to all the VMware events of corporate right. careers. Including the one you just had, the VMworld. VMworld, right? So uh, Amazon people there? 100, yeah, there were Amazon people. Andy Jassy was on stage. Okay. 150,000 people come to their events. If we can take those 250,000 people and make them join events, when we collaborate in the sales force, um, you know, Andy or his head of sales can text me. We have very, very strong relationships, and that's resulting in you know, momentum for both of us in the market. Are there a lot of companies that are saying, look, i got to figure out how to get into this world. I keep reading that Amazon Web Service will save me money. Uh, how do I do it? And, and they find their way to you because of, say, uh, IT consulting? Exactly. Okay. Indispensably, we are the king of the private cloud, okay. that sort of world that exists on-premise right. uh, and in, in managed types of clouds. As customers make their journey into the public cloud, they want the elastic capability of saying, maybe I want to just shut down my data centers and expand using the hardware of the new economy, uh, Amazon. And that's what we've been able to brilliantly engineer in this sort of hybrid cloud journey. Okay, uh, we talked, we had Brinks on recently. Maybe you can walk me through what we think they were brilliant. We thought that, that people see the trucks. No, they are a very sophisticated, digitized cash management and, and valuable as, uh, asset management company. What do they need VMware for? Brinks is a special company, as you talked about. They're looking to not just take care of cash, but disrupt themselves. What's the future of the truck? What's the future of digital cash? What's the future of blockchain? And if they could just run their IT operations securely in a managed fashion, reduce their data centers. So their CIO was actually on stage at VMworld and talk about how they first built a private cloud using our software-defined storage products uh, and compute virtualization, and now using our Amazon relationship, our building VMware cloud on Amazon, and have been able to reduce their data centers dramatically. And that helps them save costs and improve ROI. Now, now they get back to focusing on their business, and we make the infrastructure just run. Now I know I wanted to ask you about Dell. I understand that's in flux can't talk about is my understanding. Yeah, listen, we focus on what we can focus right. on, which is the long-term growth of this company, and that's going well, and Dell's been an incredible partner to help accelerate our growth. Right. And, but I do want to give you a chance, I've been out at Salesforce, lots of it is education, it's not a trade show. You too believe in education, it's your passion. It's absolutely. I think people used to go to old trade shows, maybe consumer, boat <laughs> shows, just to buy stuff. Right. These are not selling events anymore. They are education and inspirational events. So at VMworld, we talked a lot about our future. Pat gave a brilliant talk on day one. I took the keynote on day two. And then we had a special guest speaker for the first time, Malala Yousafzai, who is a Nobel Peace Prize winner. And you know her story. She was shot as a young kid, and she is focused on young girls in her education. And I had people, big men, crying at the end of this thing. It was just amazing to hear how inspirational her passion for education. I believe that if you are doing well, which is right. VMware, right. you should also be doing good. And that's part of our mission. And I'm so glad you said because that has been a, a, our major theme this year, because it's okay to feel that way and to talk like that. And that is Sanjay Poonin. He's the Chief Operating Officer of VMware. Hopefully you understand why I think this is such an important cloud thing and may have money's back in. this whole week telling you about the many ways the technology companies are changing the world by revolutionizing the way we do business. Take Salesforce. This has to be one of the most philanthropically oriented companies I've ever seen. Not only does Salesforce have a terrific track record of charitable giving, they just announced another $15 million donation to the Oakland and San Francisco school districts this week. But they also give their software away to thousands of nonprofits and charities. That's pretty revolutionary in and of itself. Now, earlier this week, we had an opportunity to speak to the very impressive Ebony Freelix, Salesforce.org's executive vice president slash chief philanthropy officer about the company's commitment to philanthropy. Take a look. 
Ebony, you have a novel title. You're chief philanthropy officer, but you're also an executive vice president. What does, it, what does the head of philanthropy, meaning the chief, do at Salesforce? Well, first of all, Jim, I'm so excited to be here, and I have the best job. That, that chief philanthropy officer means I have the best job at Salesforce, one of the best. My, my title and my role is really responsible for engaging the 30,000 Salesforce employees who want to give back and make a difference in their communities. But we're also responsible for the grant making, all those resources that go back into the community to give back to the nonprofits that we care so deeply about. Well, you have an announcement today on the kind of grant you give. Why don't you tell people, because I think it seems to be emblematic of what you do. Absolutely. So today we're announcing $18 million going back into the local communities. 15.5 of that going directly into San Francisco and Oakland Unified School Districts, 2 million to go to homelessness and hunger, and 500,000 going to the San Francisco parks. So we're really focusing on education, housing and homelessness, and having really clean, safe places for kids to play. I think it's important that we mention that the commitment that you have, that Mark Benny off the Salesforce says, to public education because most of the time people say, well, wait a second, that's the government's job. Why do they have to help? You know, it's really a partnership. And for us, it's we're six years in with San Francisco, three years in with Oakland. We've been, you know, really, we take this commitment, we take our responsibilities to the community very seriously. We, we really want to wrap all of our services, meeting our employees' time, our grant dollars, and our technology around the school because we know what happens outside of the school impacts what happens inside of the school. So we started off six years ago with, with widgets, with stuff, right? So it was iPads in the school, everybody was doing that, right? And now we realize, you know, it's the teachers, it's the math, it's the critical thinking, it's the computer science, it's mindfulness. You know, we're really concerned about that whole child. So it's, you know, from the parents to the community to the, to the teacher, to the kid, we really want to make sure that they have exactly what they need to thrive. Okay, Ebony, the Salesforce ethos is one, one, one. And yet when you Google it, it's really not clear. <laughs> so please tell people where you fit in with one, 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 particularly how you guide key parts of that equation. Well, 19 years ago, Salesforce was founded and one, the 111 model was an integral part of that. So that meant 1% of our company's equity, 1% of our employees' time, and 1% of our technology was going back into the community. That was very important to Mark. So the giving back is a part of our DNA. And out of that, you know, our model evolved. It's grown into so much more. Today we've given over a quarter billion dollars away. <laughs> it's huge. I heard Mark say that yesterday and I was like, Oh my gosh, yes, I right? That down. I had to write that down, because that is really extraordinary. dollars away. And then our employees have volunteered over three million hours. They'll do a million hours this year. And we've given our technology to over 37,000 nonprofit organizations. And I, you know, I love that every, every day one of every Salesforce employee, they give back. They give back. And a lot of them join our company because we, do, we give back. We offer seven paid days off to all of our employees to do whatever they want. And I love how we, we, but we do encourage our employees to get involved, to give back to the local community. So that could be, you know, cleaning up a park or knocking on the door of your, um, your public school and asking, what can I do? 
Well, this is very interesting because you have a cloud dedicated to education. <laughs> yes, I, I think, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but a lot of companies would say, you know what, I can actually, uh, we, don't, we can't give it away, we have to charge. So Salesforce actually does something rather amazing, which is it gives away with the idea that you're going to get back to. There's obviously a return on investment that you measure. It's not just like, here's some money, and, and if it works out, that's fine. Yeah, doing well, doing good. We believe that the, the, the business of business is to improve the state of the world, <laughs> right? And so we do well when our communities are thriving, when our kids you know, learn and have critical thinking skills, they grow up and contribute and become positive members of society. They come and work for all of our companies, not just Salesforce. So we take that responsibility very seriously. We absolutely, we do not take it lightly. One last question, you're self-effacing and you're giving, but you're also right from information technology. <laughs> you did not join necessarily to volunteer. I it, did not. It was a journey for you, right? <laughs> I did not. My degree is in computer science. Um, I came from the banking industry and I, I never saw myself working in a nonprofit. I always volunteered. I volunteered since I was a, a young girl. But the fact that I get to do this as my job every day is just amazing. Well, look, congratulations on all the good works that you do. That's Ebony Freelich. She's the chief philanthropy officer, salesforce.org, O-R-G. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jim. <laughs>
Hey, Jim. Big condolences to you, my friend. Uh, the loss of your dear, dear pal, Bug. I'm sure the house it feels a little bit less uh, populated now, but uh, Thank you'll you. get Bug through Bug was this. a very good boy. He's a very good boy. How can I help? I, I read a great piece on Real Money Pro the other day by Roger Lipton about restaurants that might be uh, set up nicely for a buyout or a sale. And one of them that, that really sort of caught my eye was Bojangles, B-O-J-A. Wanted to get your thoughts. Well, you know what? I, I totally understand why someone might think that, but the stock was up so much today we can't come on top of it because what will happen is I'll recommend a stock and it'll be up there on a takeover basis and on a fundamental basis it'll end up hurting us. So I'm going to take a pass right here, but I understand the thesis. Mark in Arizona. Mark! Hey, Jim! Yo, Mark. Booyah! Hey, this Booyah. is short and sweet, Phoenix, Arizona. Don't tell me about the labor pains. Just show me the baby. I got two picks today. FedEx and Cat, they're going down. They're so hideous, I can't look away. Keep them or dump them, my financial swami. What was the stock? What was the stock? FedEx! I think FedEx is terrific. I think that I'm not as worried about world trade as other people. They just don't seem to be able to understand that FedEx is incredibly well run. And I like the last quarter, despite the fact that others didn't. Let's go to John in Arizona. John! How are you doing, Jimmy? Not bad, John. Thank you for asking. How about you? I've been watching you for many years. I remember you back with the brain, back when Larry Kudlow was on the show. Holy cow, Chief of Economic Advisor, President. Thank you. I, I was wondering about, I own a stock called Fold. It's a pharmaceutical company. And I was wondering if you think that thing will take off and maybe do like Alexa. No, it's speculative Friday, and I've got to tell you, my take on that is that is one of the most speculative stocks in the book. I remember doing a, the Streets uh, bio, Biotech Bible, and it was in there. I thought it was good, but the stock has been just a wholesome pain of late. I can't recommend it other than for speculation. Let's go to Steve in Pennsylvania. Steve! Hey, booyah, Jim. Send my booyah, Steve. To the people in Nashville, uh, fly, eagles, fly. Hey, Jim, let me ask you about Discovery Class A, D-I-S-C-A. Well, you know, this stock has been on fire ever since David Faber's uh, incredible piece about how interesting the stock is with David Zaslav, who's the CEO. Therefore, it's so high, I cannot recommend it. However, I can tell you that I think that Disney is terrific. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. I spent this week in San Francisco talking to tech executives. Just take one look at ServiceNow, simple N-O-W, specifically ServiceNow's chart. I named this company one of our mad money cloud kings. And to borrow a line from Mel Brooks, it's good to be the king. The stock has rallied about 50% for 2018 after putting on a 75% gain last year. That's the power of cloud computing. And ServiceNow is perhaps the best of the best. In fact, earlier this year, Forbes named them the world's most innovative company. The secret to ServiceNow success, their cloud-based software platform lets businesses automate all sorts of information technology processes, freeing workers to spend more time helping their clients. This strategy has allowed ServiceNow to put up some incredible numbers. Of the seven companies I call Cloud Kings, these guys have the fastest growth rate. So can the stock maintain its rocket ship trajectory? Earlier today, we got a chance to check in with John Donahoe. He's the president and CEO of ServiceNow. Take a look. All right. John, people who don't understand ServiceNow need to understand something. You make the world of work work. How does that come into practice every day? 
Well, Jim, that's our core purpose as a company. We actually say we want to make the world of work work better for people. And what's behind that is over the next five to ten years, technology is going to change our lives at work profoundly. Over the last ten years, in the consumer mobile revolution, technology has transformed our lives at home right. with cloud-based applications like an eBay or a PayPal or a or a Uber on our mobile on our mobile phones. But technology today at work is complex, frustrating. And with cloud-based platforms like ServiceNow, over the next five to ten years, there is no reason why we can't have the same kind of experiences at work as we have at home. And, and the, you've got, the proof is in the pudding, the growth that you have of the Cloud Kings that we work on, you've got 47% growth in deals over $1 million. That's extraordinary. No one has anything in the 40s that I, that I follow. Well, what's happening, Jim, is customers and companies everywhere are embracing digital transformation. And it's no longer just a business buzzword. It's a strategic necessity. You must digitize your company. And ServiceNow is an essential strategic partner to help companies transform their companies digitally. That's what's driving our growth. Okay, I want to talk about what it means for a company when you cut the ticket resolution from, say, 36 hours to six hours. Because here's people get frustrated at work with IT. You solve the bottlenecks. Well, think about, again, the analogies in the consumer world. As you know, I, I'm taking lessons from my 10 years at eBay and applying them here. In the consumer world, let's take if you have to reset your PayPal password. Okay. Right? PayPal has your money. And yet you can reset your PayPal password in 20 seconds safely and securely on your mobile phone no matter where you are anywhere in the world. Think about it at work. If you have to reset your email password, it's oh. brain damage. What would you do? So ServiceNow enables you to be able to have that same kind of experience at work where you can reset your email password safely and securely. And what employees want in this day and age is they want to be able to have things happen in a self-help or automated fashion. That drives a better experience for the employee. That drives greater productivity and efficiency for the company. And it drives a happier employee and happier provider at work. That's what ServiceNow enables, is transforming the experiences at work in the same way you have at home. Uh, John, ServiceNow is doing so well that a lot of companies in the field, let's say uh, Workday, Salesforce, they're saying, you know what, they, they worry me. Not the CEOs, but because they're so powerful, they could take on us. But that's not been the way you've been doing things. Well, Jim, I'm very driven through the eyes of the customer. I've met with over 500 CIOs and CEOs in the last year. In fact, in the last month, I've been to Asia, been to Europe, been in all week this week, not at Dreamforce, but in New York, okay. meeting with customers, and they're all saying the same thing. They're saying in their digital transformation journey, they're embracing four to seven strategic platforms. Often it's Salesforce for their sales platform, Adobe for their marketing platform or cloud, Workday for their HR cloud, ServiceNow does IT and all workflow around all of these, often a Slack or a Microsoft 365, a box or a Dropbox, and they want these platforms to work together. Is that they also want these work to, to work together? So I think there's going to be multiple winners, and if we're customer focused, we'll find ways to work together to deliver the great kind of experiences at work. I want you to describe one of your best customers, which is the government, because as Americans, we all want to be able to work with the government in a much better fashion. Well, everyone's embracing cloud. And now governments are aggressively embracing cloud. Initially, they had concerns about security, and now they're recognizing the cloud can actually be more secure 
than on-prem-based software. So whether it's U.S. federal government or I was in Australia a couple weeks ago meeting with state and regional governments in Europe last week, uh, meeting with the post system of one of the major countries, government is embracing cloud because they have to deliver better experiences for their citizens and drive greater efficiency and productivity. And cloud enables you to do that, and that's what ServiceNow does. It's a platform that enables better experiences for customers and for employees, and significant productivity benefits from automating workflow. Okay, well, one of the, your, your biggest fans is uh, someone whom we're fans of, Oscar Munoz from United Continental. I've always felt that since the merger, it's been rocky. He's talking about it being smooth. It looks like ServiceNow is playing a role. Well, again, I think we're one of Oscars and United Strategic Technology Partners and Platforms, and we're proud and honored to have that role. And we're helping them automate workflows, both within IT and across the enterprise, and then also the employee experience. You think about United's employees. He has hundreds of thousands of employees all over the world in distributed areas. And if they can provide, if United provides those experiences with better those employees with better experiences, whether it's onboarding and offboarding, whether it's when an employee needs to know their scheduling concerns, whether it's a whole host of things, embracing platforms like ServiceNow is enabling United to provide better employee experiences as well as serving their customers more efficiently and effectively through automation. And we, should, we have to mention again, the, the, the numbers you are producing are extraordinary precisely because of the things that you're talking about right now. Well, that's one of the things, Jim, I appreciate most about ServiceNow is that it's historical focus on being a customer-focused organization combined with the cloud tailwind. That's what's driving our success. So we're very proud of our success and our revenue and our, our growth, but we're intensely focused on listening to our customers and determining how can we help them transform their businesses, do that in a way that drives economic value. And if we continue to do that, our growth will continue. And that's how a stock just has been nonstop because the company's nonstop. That's John Dono, who's the ServiceNow president and CEO. Remarkable job. Great Thank work. You, Jim. Great Thank to you. be here. Thank you. What a fabulous quarter, best in five years, and what a week it's been out here. There have just been so many great ideas, and I love the spirit. I also want to thank all the great people of One Market CNBC in San Francisco who make us feel so at home when we just parachute in and take over their office in a way that, well, let's just say we should be a little more genteel. It has been just such a great time. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I probably try to find it just for you right here on Man Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you Monday. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely, in context and with perspective, and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today.